Results have been disappointing. Russia will probably attack more in the winter. We can say what we want about how Russians fight, about whether they're good or not at fighting, but one thing they are really, really good at is, is digging in and, and fortifying positions. Ukraine can be hopeful that we shouldn't see some huge successful Russian offensive, but they certainly might might take the initiative. And that's when war becomes, you know, a lot more grinding and brutal. And that's where you really get into this numbers game of, you know, who can produce the most. Hi, everyone, and welcome to This Week in Ukraine, a show where the newsroom of the Cuban Independent explains Ukraine's biggest events of the week in just 30 minutes. I'm your host, Anastasia Lapatina. And today we're talking about when and how Ukraine's counteroffensive might end. And also what comes next for Ukraine when it finally does. I'm joined by someone our listeners know very well, a reporter, Francis Farrell, who just came back from the front line in Zaporizhia Oblast. Francis, hello. Hi, Nastya. Good to be back. But before we get started, I wanted to remind you guys to please subscribe to The Kim Independent wherever you're listening to this show, whether that's on YouTube or audio platforms. It really helps us grow and also helps others find our show and all our content. So, as we all know, Ukraine's counteroffensive has been underway for a bit over three months now, and it's still far from achieving all of its stated goals. But last week, U.S. top general Mark Milley basically put a timer on it, saying that Ukraine has only like 30 to 45 days left. Um, so what exactly did he mean by that? Milly was referring specifically to the weather. He said there's 30 to 45 days of fighting weather left. And if I recall correctly, that was about a week ago when he said that. Uh, so we're talking basically around the same time that counteroffensive operations ended uh, in the east of Ukraine last year. So early October, we're talking about. Uh, and again, that's, that's uh, referring specifically to the weather, specifically to the expected autumn rains and muds in which famously vehicles, even tracked vehicles, but especially wheeled vehicles just can't really maneuver in the same way that they can before. But of course, when we talk about the counteroffensive ending, uh, it's not only the weather, but also Ukraine's uh, strength and Ukraine's ability and even Ukraine's will to continue to attack, uh, which is important. So um, yeah, Millie, Millie was just referring to the, the weather, but I think it's more or less expected that, um, you know, mid-autumn we can see this offensive slowly culminate uh, and, and then the kind of rains come and then the winter campaign begins. You just came from the south of Ukraine and more specifically Zaporizhia Oblast, which is, of course, one of Ukraine's key counteroffensive directions. And based on your reporting, is this concern about weather and the weather slowing the counteroffensive down, is that a real concern? Um, do you hear that from people on the ground, from the soldiers? What are they telling you? Yeah, so I was in, uh, as you said, Zaporizhia Oblast, specifically the area where you could say the counteroffensive operation has consistently been the most intense and the most kind of high stakes, the most uh, perhaps even high casualties uh, since since it started, although we don't know exact numbers. I was around uh, the Arikiv area. Uh, south of Arikiv, of, of course, is the village of Robotina, uh, where fighting has been very intense. And I was spending time with guys from the 47th 
Brigade, which is one of these these new uh, NATO trained and with like a, a kind of young progressive ideology that was meant to be at the head of this counteroffensive. They got the Bradley infantry fighting vehicles. They got the Leopard tanks mm-hmm. from Germany, and they have been using them basically nonstop since since the counteroffensive started in June. But when 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 talking about like long term vision or like understanding of the future what do you think about the counteroffensive mr infantryman it's like a bit different um to what you would hear from an analyst even of whether they're in ukraine or 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 abroad um they they take every day one at a time uh it's it's kind of dangerous and pointless for them i guess to look too mm-hmm. deeply uh into the future so uh, you know, I, I did bring this topic up. I brought this question up and they were saying, you know, well, uh, yeah, we'll see. Obviously, if, if it rains a lot and, and it's muddy everywhere, then, uh, then the, the tanks, the Bradleys, they can't, they can't necessarily maneuver. But, you know, at the same time, it's not necessarily been uh, a, f- a kind of fighting in which they've played a huge role as well. Like, What do you mean? Because what we've seen compared to the offensives of last year of a year ago we're seeing uh positional warfare not maneuver warfare so maneuver warfare is when uh if i get it correctly uh when you kind of exploit gaps you cut through you break through um you kind of do this super smart maneuvers uh through the enemy lines and you basically capture large territories uh, at once which you don't have to all fight for trench by trench. But now, as we know very well, uh, the fighting is trench by trench. It's position by position because these are very established front lines and and very well defended and well prepared lines of defense. And so it, it just hasn't been possible to, to get that kind of great breakthrough. So in that sense, you know, the fighting is often done on foot. It's often done by infantry, obviously supported and sometimes brought to the front line by by something like a Bradley and maybe supported by by tanks further in the rear. But uh, it's often done by infantry doing these assaults uh, on foot. So potentially they could still continue, uh, even if it gets a bit muddier. But Again, there'll be there'll be less options, but it's it's nothing that's going to change the 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 game necessarily. And the guys were saying, well, I mean, yeah, maybe the Bradleys won't work, but we'll just be continuing to do our job. If we have to assault, we'll assault. If we have to defend, we'll defend. The last time you updated us on the results of this counteroffensive was around a month ago. So, what has changed since then? Have there been any new gains? Around a month ago is when we saw uh, things really raising in intensity uh, in the Robotina area, which is exactly where I just was. Um, we saw U- Ukraine kind of lurching forward. And after a long period of attrition and barely any movement on the front line, we, we saw them make some serious progress. And we saw them reach what, depending on how you call it, it could be Russia's second line of defense, or it could be the first main line, the Surovikin line, whatever you want to call it. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, since we last spoke, they have reached that line. Um, it's not really correct, in my opinion, to talk about a breakthrough here, because as I said, a breakthrough uh, implies that it's you not only break through the line, but you exploit it and you take a lot of territory at once where, you know, you 
progress is quicker once you break through. And we, we haven't seen that, of course. So we've seen, I would say, you know, Ukraine pass that line, but not very far. Uh, soldiers have been talking to me about what it looks like. They're saying that there are a lot less landmines than there were further in front. Which is good. Which is good. But on the other hand, they're coming up against deep underground systems of defense, uh, lines of, of, of underground positions reinforced by concrete, joined by, by long tunnels. Um, and this is, they've just reached that line. So, so we haven't, uh, I asked, do you, do you guys have, have any photos from there? What does it look like? And they couldn't really say much, but, uh, and, and it is, it is true that after making that progress and reaching that line, now things have once again kind of bogged down and, and gotten a lot uh, more difficult uh, in that section, Robotina or Ekiv, uh, where we have seen progress recently is around Bakhmut, where I was about a month ago. And there we have seen Ukrainian units uh, take back two villages, both of which are quite important, uh, Andreevka, which is just basically two streets of, of ruined houses now, and Klishivka, which is actually one of the most important kind of strategic settlements on the southern front of Bakhmut. Why is it so important? It was a major kind of, uh, I guess, checkpoint for Russia when they took that southern area of Bakhmut around January. So if we remember back to winter, they took the southern flank of Bakhmut, they took the northern flank around Solidar, and they almost encircled the city. And now right. Ukraine's working on doing the same thing. So not going straight into Bakhmut, but taking the flanks and hoping to make progress and potentially uh, threaten the city in in the in the future but again it depends a lot on on how far and how long uh ukraine can keep the initiative for there so given all of that where is ukraine standing in terms of manpower and its ammunition expenditure uh so in other words could a pause in active fighting if the counteroffensive was to be over soon could could that pause actually give ukraine some useful time to maybe regroup and recover it's hard to see how that would necessarily be beneficial for Ukraine, to be honest, because we, we have seen, you know, how much Russia has benefited from having time on their side uh, to, we, we know Ukraine wants to go forward. That's like a matter of existential existence for Ukraine. We know they need to go forward and, and take back the rest of their territory. That's their goal in this war. And Russia, knowing this, uh, knows that if they dig in and defend and lay down more minefields and dig more trenches and underground systems, then they can more efficiently and more effectively stop Ukraine from doing that and kind of entrench their hold of this occupied territory. And of course, they always have time to mobilize more men as well, uh, slowly, you know, recuperate their own brigades. So it's, yeah, it's hard to see how that would benefit Ukraine. Um, it's tricky to predict what will happen uh, in the winter, but it's going to be difficult. Well, soldiers said several of them, like, we can say what we want about how Russians fight, about whether they're good or not at fighting. But one thing they are really, really good at is, is digging in and, and fortifying positions. So basically, if the really active fighting stops and there is some sort of operational pause, uh, this really will benefit the Russian forces. Most likely, you know, if we if we don't talk about other factors, we we can't predict uh, internal Russian issues or or you know the arrival of some game changing weapon, which is very unlikely. Uh, that's probably the case. Yeah. So if 
all of these predictions are correct. And come December, Ukraine has to slow down or maybe completely end its offensive operations. Will the Russians take back the offensive initiative? What will the fighting look like on the battlefield? So usually that's how it's gone so far, right? In this in this war, you know, one side has the initiative. It's like they they very politely take turns. One attacks, <laughs> then the other attacks. Although that's not completely true because right now, even you know, as this counteroffensive has gone on through summer, Russia has been taking the initiative in the north, in Kupiansk region uh, near Kharkiv, right. uh, unsuccessfully. You know. It's worth remembering that both sides have had a really hard time attacking. And as long the longer the war goes on, the harder that's going to be, most likely. Why? Um, because both sides have a chance to to dig in, to to improve their positions. Right. And and the the quality forces, you know, high quality assault troops backed by high quality equipment, um, you know, gets exhausted over time. So last winter, obviously, Russia attacked in several different areas with varying amounts of success. And so it makes sense to predict that after this counteroffensive eventually reach a, reaches a point of, of culmination, um, Russia will, will go for it in the winter. But it's worth remembering that Russia doesn't have the ability at this point, probably, to, to attack in the same way they did uh, last winter. They Why? They don't have... Wagner, first of all, I think uh, that factor can't be ignored. Yeah, ignored. They don't have this kind of force of of really professional mercenaries mixed with zombie prisoners that they used so effectively uh, last winter. And the, their other attacks around Kremina and around uh, Vukledar in the winter, they, they didn't go anywhere. So I think in that sense, Ukraine can be hopeful that we shouldn't see some huge successful Russian offensive. But they certainly might might take the initiative. So let's now look beyond the counteroffensive and this never-ending analysis of its gains and setbacks, because we've done this several times in the podcast with you. Um, what I want to ask is when this is over and the counteroffensive has to be over sooner or later, what do you think Ukraine will focus on? Like what's going to be the next big strategic thing? Again, it's I can't predict with complete certainty, uh, but... As I said, with both sides finding it harder and harder and more and more costly to try and, you know, conduct big offensive operations to tr take a lot of territory, I think what, you know, is quite likely that we'll see is a longer kind of dipping into a more attritional form of war uh, where both sides don't necessarily focus so much on taking trenches, taking positions, making breakthroughs. Maneuvering. Maneuvering, uh, but instead, um, instead focus on attrition, focus on eliminating the enemy, whether that's their personnel, their their military equipment, their artillery, their logistics, uh, as much as possible. And that's when war becomes, you know, a lot more grinding and brutal. And that's where you really get into this numbers game of, you know, who can produce the most. Uh, you know, this this industrial kind of war be between the, the NATO countries producing artillery shells for Ukraine and between, and between Russia's industrial capacity. And uh, in parallel to that, you have the competition when it comes to FPV drones, for example, which are playing a bigger and bigger role in this war. When I was in, in Zaporizhia region, 
know, like soldiers were telling me pretty scary stories about these FPV drones uh, that they were already going after soldiers themselves. They were used against not only tanks or or vehicles, but just against individual soldiers. Wow. So I've never heard of that before. Russia has. Uh, looks like they have plenty of those, and and that will be an increasing, you know, an increasingly tricky part of this war as well. But that's that's I think you know f- to make a safe prediction. That's that's the most um, simple thing I can say that that we'll probably be going into this long numbers game. And then, you know, the, the time will tell like who that numbers game is more going in favor of. And if it seems like it's, it's consistently and clearly going in the favor of one side, then that side might eventually see a window to again, launch uh, a large offensive operation to take territory. Right, because when this counteroffensive was starting, I remember certain Ukrainian military officials saying that, like, don't think of this counteroffensive as the last one or the ultimate one. When this is over, we're going to prepare for another one, and we're already preparing for however many counteroffensives this is going to take. Yeah, yeah, and we will, and we will see that, you know, um, from from both sides. The, we will see the initiative change sides. Russia will probably attack more in the winter, but we can't we can't be certain. And when They've had enough of attacking. Ukraine will probably try again. But again, it just gets harder and harder when both sides have that chance to dig in. Is it too early to judge whether this counteroffensive was a success? Yes, to a point. I mean, it's not over yet, right? Right. Millie, we trust Millie, right? He, he said that 30 to 45 days. But in, in all seriousness, um, you know, we have a murky picture of attrition on both sides. We don't know the whole picture, but... Uh, I think it's fair to say that expectations have clashed against reality. And if you look at the map, you know, results have been disappointing. Let's, let's be honest, uh, because especially if, if we look at the south, southern front line in Zaporizhia, you know, everyone was hyping that as the main axis of the counteroffensive. And in the end, it was, you know, it is. Uh, Ukraine didn't pull off some brilliant switcheroo uh, and attack into Belgorod or across the river in Kherson or something like that. So that was the main axis of attack. And people at first, when before it started, they thought, you know, Ukraine could get to the Azov Sea, maybe they could get to Melitopol. And then they thought, mm, actually, maybe that's going to be tricky. Well, they can get to Tokmak, surely. And then now it looks like that getting to Tokmak, soldiers were pretty honest with me about it. It's, it's going to be... Uh, you know, a bit of a miracle if it happens. Not completely out of the question, but but uh, but now again, expectations uh, have shifted, and with expectations uh, come you know understanding of success and measurement of success right. also shifting. Yeah. We're now going to be moving to the questions that we got from our community members. As always, I'll encourage you guys. To donate to the Kiev Independent by going to kievindependent.com slash membership. There is an option for a one-time donation and also different years of monthly support uh, for as little as $5 a month. And you get really cool perks like access to lectures and uh, talks with editors. And also, of course, our favorite perk is that you get to send us in questions before every single podcast episode. We try to incorporate as many of your questions as we can all throughout the episode. So it really helps us form the topics and the questions that we tackle. But then we also answer some of them directly at the end here. So, uh, Francis, the question that we want to talk about today is, is there a draft in Ukraine? 
And let's look at it more broadly. Let's talk about the issues of mobilization in Ukraine in general. As the war goes longer and longer and Ukraine gets used to this state of war, but also this being a new normality and life returning, then the question of the draft becomes a very important one. Uh, of course, Ukraine has had martial law and Ukraine has had a full mobilization regime in place since the very first days of the full-scale invasion. Um, and so, you know, now, of course, a year and a half into the war, a lot, uh, very few people at this point are now deciding to go for the first time uh, and volunteer to, to serve. So Ukraine's units need to be resupplied with mobilized troops, just, you know, in, almost in a similar way to Russia. You know, mobilization is mobilization. And those, uh, the, the way it should work is that you know, people, according to the draft, uh, uh, receive a summons notice. They have to come in to the enlistment office. They go through a bunch of checks, medicals, and so on, and and then they go forward from there. But you know, it's a difficult thing. You know, not it's it's difficult to imagine what it would be like in in, in anyone else's country uh, if there was full mobilization, if if the male military age population couldn't leave the country, and if they were fighting this this brutal war constantly. And so issues uh, come up. Um, Just to be clear, full mobilization doesn't mean that uh, every single man in the country has been issued a notice of some sort where they have to show up and, you know, go fight in the military, right? No. So there are no. these sort of like waves of mobilization yeah. that we have. Yeah. And, and it's also a, a constant process. Of course, you can't, you can't take the whole uh, military age male population to the front line. Um, but, but yeah, it's, it's tricky and, and it's one of, you know, it's a source of slowly bubbling social tension, especially when it's not done correctly. And when you have corruption in the system, which we definitely do. Which we do. You know, there there was this scandal uh, with uh, the head of the military enlistment office in Odessa, you know, who was stealing a lot of money and he had a nice villa in Spain. Right. Uh, and so on. And just a few days ago, there was there was a video uh, from Lviv Oblast, like almost near the Polish border um, of what looked like, uh, military enlistment officers kind of abusing, uh, this guy. In a his, civilian. Yeah. Mm -hmm. in, a civilian. Uh, as far as I understand, it was about, uh, they were trying to pressure him into, um, signing off on some medical, um, requirements. They've also changed the law to make, to reduce the list of, of medical conditions that can actually exempt you from service. Um, which, which many Soldiers, as far as I understand, they're not very happy with because we still have a lot of healthy male population that can go and fight. Yeah. Again, it's just another example of, of the social tensions that, 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 you know, martial law and mobilization will bring up in a country, both among the military and among civilians. You know, soldiers talk about how weird they feel, you know, when they go back to the city and they see, you know, healthy military aged men just walking around, drinking, having a good time. And, and it's tricky because Ukraine's a democracy. It's, it's used to uh, freedom. It's not like this kind of slave state like Russia is. I think you can make a good argument about that where you're dragged away to the war and you, you know. You just do it because you do you've it. been dragged. Yeah, because you can't do anything. So it's, it's a weird paradox where on one hand, Ukraine is very much keen on fighting for its freedom. But uh, when you look at the level of the individual, it's not 
you know, desirable to to be stuck in this in in this war that could go on for years and for other males you know to to potentially be dragged off to that war so something to keep an eye on uh, and something i think the government will need to look at more closely in the future well francis thank you so much for being here it was very interesting to listen to you as always always a pleasure Also this week, Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky gave a speech at the UN General Assembly, warning the leaders of UN state against trusting the Kremlin. Zelensky said that he's aware of attempts to close quote-unquote shady deals with Russia behind the scenes, adding that quote, evil cannot be trusted. Tensions also continue to rise between Ukraine and Poland over grain exports, with Poland announcing a new ban on Ukrainian grain and Ukraine reportedly planning to introduce an embargo on Polish goods in response. Ukraine has also filed lawsuits against Poland, Slovakia and Hungary to the World Trade Organization over their grain bans. While Poland also said that it might not extend its aid to the roughly 1 million Ukrainian refugees that are still in the country. And Ukraine's new defense minister, Rustem Umerov, took part in the 15th Rammstein summit on September 19th. Ukraine's allies agreed to form capability coalitions around five key defense priorities. More specifically, air defense, artillery, aviation, the Navy, and armored vehicles. Several states also pledged new military aid packages, including tens of thousands of artillery shells for Ukraine from the UK. You can find our show on YouTube and all audio platforms every Friday morning. If you like this episode, please leave comments and like our content wherever you're listening to this podcast. Support The Kiwi Independent by donating at kiwiindependent.com slash membership and also following us on social media on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We'll be back next week. Thank you for listening. <laughs>